Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome once again to our podcast, Discovering the Old Testament, Episode 44, where we will continue our previous discussion of the Minor Prophets. I want to take a moment here and thank our listeners who have helped make this podcast possible. If you like what you hear, please show your support with a donation. You can make donations safely and securely at lafcospress.com. Last time we looked at two of the minor prophets, Amos and Hosea, who were contemporaries of each other and overlapped somewhat with the ministry of Isaiah. All of them preached under the shadow of the Assyrian Empire, which represented an existential threat both to the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. It was literally a long, drawn-out, and ultimately futile exercise in trying to save a covenant people from itself. In spite of every break of promised protection and the hope of renewed compassion, in spite of more or less constant unfaithfulness, Israel seemed hell-bent on making the worst possible choices, at least by the lights of her prophetic critics. I should mention, incidentally, that we call them the minor prophets, not because they were unimportant or of lesser quality or under 18, but because their written works were short. It seems that all twelve minor prophetic works were brought together early on in a single scroll. It's also the case that most of them worked during the time of Judah's decline and fall, with perhaps some post-exilic material in Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Joel seems to have some familiarity with the Second Temple, so he is perhaps best dated to the post-exilic period as well. That said, they have different concerns and agendas. We've already seen the concern for the vulnerable that drives Amos and Hosea. Nahum has little to say about Judah in particular. He's positively giddy while he narrates the rapid decline and fall of the cursed Assyrian Empire to the Babylonians and good riddance to the lot of them. But while Nahum is cheering on the Babylonian mopping-up operations, Habakkuk warns Judah that it will be the Babylonians who will become the scourge of God to punish Judah for their lack of social justice and mistreatment of the poor and vulnerable. When the Babylonians get around to destroying Jewish cities, their old, old enemies, the Edomites, swoop in to grab what they could. Obadiah's very short book of exactly 21 verses in a single chapter is a curse on the opportunistic Edomites, followed by a promise of Judah's eventual triumph and revenge. We can't do justice to all the minor prophets in the time we have, so I'd like to talk about three of the minor prophets, Joel, Micah, and Jonah. There isn't anything particular to connect these three. The minor prophets constitutes a major field of biblical study, and as I said, our time is limited. Micah of Moresheth was another contemporary of Isaiah, but even though his message is similar to Isaiah's, the setting is different. As a figure of narrative, Isaiah has a certain advantage. He's well-placed in Judean society, highly educated, he has access to both the temple and the royal court, 
and the center of power. It's very urban in its character. But Micah is different. We see almost no mention at all of Jerusalem or the temple. Micah is, for lack of a better word, a country prophet. His domain is among the small towns and villages that make up rural Judea. The politics are more tribal, more concerned with the nearby Philistines, the daily routine more caught up in matters of weather and harvest. Those differences actually tend to highlight some of the similarities between the two. Where Micah speaks of his beloved city falling into the hands of foreign conquerors, Micah laments those same enemies dividing up the fields. Most differences fade to insignificance, however, when Micah starts talking about the root causes of Judah's troubles. Just like Isaiah, he looks around and sees injustice and evil wherever he looks. Where Isaiah castigates the smooth-talking legalists who fleece the poor, Micah turns his rage against greedy landlords and landholders who take advantage of the poor. The two prophets paint such a similar picture of the moral decay of Judean society that it really serves to confirm that what they describe is probably an accurate historical picture of what was really going on at the time. The similarities between Micah and Isaiah, and Amos and Hosea for that matter, notwithstanding, you will have noticed by now that the prophets don't exactly agree on everything that needs to be said. Clearly they are writing in a time of existential peril for their peoples, but is the true source of peril idolatry or injustice or something else entirely? This is when theological nitpicking gets to be not only intellectually tedious, but virtually ensures that one will miss the point. The voice of prophecy, as we find it here, is the cry of outrage and defiance in the face of crisis. But where many people saw the crisis in the inexorable advance of the Assyrian and later the Babylonian armies and their allies, these men tried to get at the roots of the problem. The voice of prophecy is, I think, the articulation of a later zeitgeist, a collective realization similar to the one Hans Küng used to summarize the spirit of the intertestamental period, which is this, the world must be changed, positively and radically changed. For this reason, I find it unsatisfactory to look at the phenomenon of social justice prophecy or prophecy against militaristic foreign policy as the work of a few people. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses wishes that all of God's people would be prophets. It is more than a little ironic that the prophetic voice was apparently everywhere, even as Judah's time as a covenant nation moved swiftly to its end. Kung's quote on the spirit of the intertestamental period reflects the sense of anticipation and almost desperate longing for a better world, no matter what had to happen in order to find it. We see hints of early apocalypticism in the prophets of this period that would later explode into a wild mix of end-time prophecy. Joel is an excellent example of this. His work is filled with predictions of a vast locust swarm that would starve humans and animals alike, signs and portents, and word of a coming new age when all the people would have the gift of prophecy. Joel uses the phrase, Day of the Lord, 
in a way different from earlier prophets. Formerly, the phrase referred to a divine intervention in which what was out of place or missing would be put back to rights, after which time would continue cycling on as it always had. It was more of a correction than a once-and-for-all transition to a completely different new age that would last forever. By the time of Jesus, it was a full-on apocalyptic phrase, which is why Joel's words about prophecy found place in the book of Acts' account of Pentecost. This was no mere reshuffling. It was the beginning of a new age, one that prophets of all colors and flavors have looked for ever since. And the signs that the words of the prophets are written on the subway walls and tenement calls. One of the more neglected and misunderstood minor prophets is Jonah. We tend to get hung up on that whole episode about the giant fish. Early Christians latched on to the business of three days in the belly of the fish as foreshadowing Jesus's three days in the tomb before his resurrection, so much of what the book does say gets passed over. Even when we read the story in full, it's easy to miss some very subtle, very pointed statements, not only about how God operates, but some equally sharp theological critiques of prophecy itself. First, some background. As we have seen in other minor prophets, and quite a few major ones, making execrations and various other curses was part of a prophet's stock in trade. One reason why the establishment kept them around is because they were specialists in a sort of magical combat that was common throughout the ancient Near East. Recall Balaam, who was specifically commissioned by the Moabites to curse the incoming Israelites, but disappointed his client by wandering off script. Way off script. There was the widespread belief that the words of prophets had particular power. This is why it was so scandalous for a prophet to direct curses at his own people. One could interpret such a thing as an existential threat. When prophets spoke, stuff happened. Which takes us back to Jonah. The first thing you have to understand is that the author of Jonah uses hyperbole and sometimes even satire to make his point. In our last episode, we ended on a rather somber note, pointing out that the prophetic mission to rescue Israel from disaster had failed. God's own people were totally deaf to the pleas, indictments, harangues, oracles, and, for lack of a better word, guerrilla theater of the prophets. About the only positive thing that can be said is that the predictions of doom came to pass, leaving the ghosts of those prophets in a fine position to say, I told you so, through their surviving writings. In fact, the accuracy, broadly seen, of their predictions is one of the reasons those records survived. But the book of Jonah asks, among several other questions, what happens when prophecy works and the people listen? That's a good thing right? Well, that depends. Jonah begins with a prophetic call, like most other prophetic stories with a biographical element. Like his predecessors, Jonah resists the call, 
really resists. In fact, he is so unhappy at the thought of becoming a prophet that he actually tries to get away from God. This by itself should be an early alert that Jonah's author is engaging in a bit of satire. Eventually, while trying to escape via ship, a storm comes up that threatens to swamp the ship. Jonah confesses that he's brought the bad mojo aboard, and at his request they throw him overboard, where he ends up in a fish's gullet for three days, before getting upchucked out on the shore near his assigned destination. What is striking up to this point is the sense of inevitability in the narrative. God has called Jonah to be a prophet, and that is just the way it's going to be. Nothing Jonah can do will stop that from happening. God's word is immutable. And so Jonah takes his message to Nineveh and preaches their utter doom in 40 days. Now let's give ourselves some context here. This is Nineveh we're talking about. This is the capital of one of the most brutal, bloodthirsty, callous, savage, and aggressive empires of the ancient Near East. And believe me, that's saying something. But to everyone's shock and amazement, they repent. Jonah doesn't even have to bargain God down to a lower standard the way Abraham did for Sodom. They do the whole program, sackcloth, ashes, the whole penitent schmear. It would be like standing on a corner along the Vegas Strip, telling everybody to knock it off with the gambling and hookers, and just like that they say, gee, you know what, that's true, we are so totally doing the wrong thing, let's give it all up. Yeah, right. Once more, we get more than a hint of satire going on. But now it gets truly interesting. In chapter 3, verse 10, we read, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Horror of horrors, God spares the city, and Jonah is pissed. What happened to divine justice? What happened to the inevitability of God's commands that had Jonah cooling his heels inside a fish for three days? God had planted a bush to shade him while Jonah sat in the desert outside the city waiting for the fireworks, but it never happened, and the bush died as quickly as it sprang up, leaving him to bake in the desert sun. Apparently, God had a problem with roasting a whole city of confirmed sinners, but didn't think twice about shriveling the bush that kept the sun off his servant Jonah. Even worse, from Jonah's perspective, God has made him out to be a fool. Deuteronomy 18.22 sets the standard for recognizing a real prophet. Quote, if a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, but the thing does not take place or prove true, it is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be frightened by it. The mark of a prophet is that when you make a prediction it comes true. Otherwise, you're not a real prophet, at least not one worth paying attention to. In fact, you are, arguably, a fraud. Jonah needs Nineveh to burn like Sodom and Gomorrah in order to validate himself as a prophet. God, as usual, has his own take on things. In chapter 4, he asks Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the bush? 
And he said, Yes, enough to die. Then the Lord said, You are concerned about the bush, for which you did not labor, and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night, and perished in a night. And should not I be concerned about Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than a hundred and twenty thousand people, who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals? In other words, if people have turned from their evil, God sees no reason to punish them. The lives of the people and animals of Nineveh are a lot more important than maintaining some veneer of divine consistency, and certainly more important than Jonah's ego. This is one of the more important messages of the Old Testament that frequently gets lost in the midst of all the tales of smiting and begetting and what not. The God of the Old Testament is unique among deities of its time and region in that he has this amazing ability to change his mind about things. And the central concern that drives these changes is not commandments or covenants or festivals. It is encapsulated into a single word, compassion. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S-Press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament. Thank you.